0: Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The The Business Business Exit Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful, and yes, some not so successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit.
1: Today, we have with us David Copy, an M&A advisor who specializes in software, service as a service, companies, as well as tech-oriented firms. In today's episode, Dave shares how a business card in a shirt pocket that was visible to others in a meeting helped dramatically increase the value of a deal when one of the buyers in the meeting realized that their major competitor was bidding on the deal that they were negotiating. Within 24 hours after they realized this, an offer was submitted that was substantially higher than anticipated. You'll find the details of this story really fascinating. In another transaction, Dave shares how COVID has altered how deals are getting done today and how smart buyers and sellers are stepping back and realizing that it's a different day today and that deals still can get done if both parties can work through the deal structures that are tailored for both buyers and sellers. On another deal, Dave shares the details, how smaller companies can add huge strategic value to larger companies with their value proposition, and why it's important for everyone to understand, because ability to position your company and create additional strategic value can dramatically increase your company's end value in the hands of a strategic acquirer. Finally, Dave shares a story of why it's important for sellers to realize that what they do well and what they do not do so well, and if what they don't do well can be done better by other companies and someone else other than themselves, it may be time to sell. This one insight is well worth listening to this episode for a lot of entrepreneurs in our audience. This is Marvin L. Storm with David Copy. Dave, would you take a few minutes to introduce yourself on the Business Exit Stories podcast here and chat a little bit about where you're located and a little bit about your specialty in the M&A world?
2: Okay. Uh, Dave Copy with Mid-Market Capital. We are a technology-focused merger and acquisitions firm. We specialize in smaller software and IT services companies. Uh, Formerly out of Chicago, but uh, moved uh, around the corner to the uh, lakeshore in uh, southwest Michigan, so Grand Beach, Michigan. Okay, cool. Uh, We've been in business for 20 years. My background is I started out as a bag-carrying salesman with IBM and worked in the technology field for the next 20 years and after my fifth company that either was acquired or went bankrupt, I decided to change career paths a little bit and get something more stable. So I hired on with a local guy who was kind of the guru of small market M&A in the Chicago market and trained under him for a couple of years. And I wanted to represent tech companies and he didn't. So we parted ways and that's how mid-market capital got us start.
1: Well, sounds fascinating that you have a real specialty here. Uh, We live in a technology-driven world, and I would imagine that the experience you've had over the last couple of decades is very relevant. So why don't we jump in and chat a little bit about some of those transactions you've been involved in that have their unique uh, twists and turns and great takeaways for those uh, who are listening to the podcast and looking for those hints and tips and strategies that they can use in their own company. So why don't we start with one of those technology companies you've been involved in. And tell us a little bit about the type of company it was and what really drove them to get to the position where they thought it might be time to exit their business.
2: Well, um, we recently sold a company that um, I was uh, talking to you before the formal interview about. uh, It was the easiest deal we've ever done because the company was just so attractive to buyers. And it was attractive for a number of reasons. What type of company was it? They did uh, software for managing the document uh, storage and retrieval process for automobile dealerships. So if you've uh, recently purchased a car, you know how much paperwork is involved. And to have a system that helps dealers manage, store, and retrieve documents in an efficient fashion it uh, was a great uh, strategy for for launching their business. Um, they had about 95% of their revenue was software as a service, so recurring revenue, which is an incredibly attractive business model. Most of the major software companies have already converted to that model, like Microsoft or Adobe, for example. Uh, really smart management team. Um, a great total addressable market. So they had penetrated maybe 5% of the available dealerships. Did they have any major competitors in the business? Well, there were some competitors that did the large uh, dealership management systems, uh, but their document management modules were not competitive. They were just not convenient, not easy to use. So a lot of times what the dealers would do is they'd have this overall management system and they would turn off the document management part of it and use our client's software. Okay. And so as this transaction
1: kind of unfolded, you said it had a only 5% market penetration. So that, that certainly is attractive to folks that are looking to acquire it. As you went out and started to market the company, what type of buyers showed up?
2: Well, we, uh, we aggressively go to uh, a couple of types of buyers. Well, one, obviously, are the strategic buyers, which own, uh, some are software consolidators. There are some companies out there that fancy themselves as being a, a Berkshire Hathaway of software companies. So they just buy, they, they call them vertical industry software companies. Uh, you have folks that are in the dealership software business themselves. So I mentioned some of the dealership management um, providers. We went after them. Uh, We went after uh, private equity groups that are very active buyers of software companies now. So we had a great combination of uh, strategic general software companies, strategic industry software companies and private equity groups that are active in software acquisitions.
1: So what was the real motivation for the management team or the owner? Was it just to take chips off the table or had they grown it to a place where they didn't think they could take it to the next level? What was really the driver <laughs> behind the exit?
2: They had a, a a basket of riches, so to speak. They, they had all these different companies that they were involved in and a couple of them really took off more so than this one. I mean, this was a great little business, but they had some big real estate uh, investments that came uh, up, you know, make, making a lot of money for them, and they wanted to focus on those. They were, you know, moving toward retirement, so they needed to kind of consolidate and uh, and focus on what they, their main businesses were.
1: Well, it sounds like all the stars were lining up here. They didn't have a lot of issues. They were growing, really couldn't focus on the business. So it was a good time to pass off the football to someone that can run down the field with it in a big way. All these different buyers, strategic, private equity. How did the transaction unfold?
2: Well, of course, you've, you know, they don't sell themselves. So you've got to go through the process. So it involves, you know, creating a database first and submitting that database to your client to approve. So sometimes they don't want you to contact certain competitors that they deem could do them harm. So we make sure we're, we're careful about creating that list and getting it approved. Then we put together what's called a blind profile. Uh, some people call it a teaser. Uh, and that describes the business without giving away the identity of the business. And then we create uh, a memorandum or an offering book uh, different people call it a pitch deck, uh, and that is describing the the client in more detail. Uh, we have sort of a unique process that we go through that um, gives the, uh, the buyers the impression that they're in a competitive deal without sort of poking them in the chest. As we have conference calls with potential buyers and as we get questions that are asked and answered... We have a frequently asked questions document that's a live document that basically talks about all the questions that were asked and provides the answers. And we periodically send that out to everybody that's executed the confidentiality agreement and and read the memorandum. There are a couple of reasons we do that. It's very efficient so that buyers are not asking the same questions over and over again. But the second reason is you know, these buyers get this frequently asked questions update and they go, boy, that's a really good question. And I didn't ask it. There must be some really qualified buyers in here competing with me. So that's been a very effective document for us to try and create this uh, competitive feeling without you know, some people will actually walk away if they feel like it's an auction.
1: In this type of situation, as the buyers went through that process of due diligence, how many were actually in play at the time? Did you have just a couple or were there a half a dozen or more?
2: Well, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact number. No, it was a, a just a very large number of confidentiality. I think it was in the 90s.
1: Holy smokes, That that, that is a basketful.
2: Uh, we had uh, eight. Uh, competitive letters of intent submitted. And, uh, you know, obviously one winner. But, uh, you know, I tell our clients, you know, if I only have one offer, I'm not a very good negotiator. But boy, I was good on this one. (laughs) It's easy to negotiate, you know, you you get these letters of intent, and you know, you, you counter propose. And they, if you counter-propose quite a bit higher than they offered, they go, either this guy's a riverboat gambler or he's got some other offers on the table.
1: Mm-hmm. And how did it end up?
2: Well, we got a, a an offer that, quite frankly, uh, outstripped my expectations and certainly outstripped our clients' expectations. And after we got the dual signed letter of intent, four of the uh, finalists, Contacted me again. Said, "Can anything I can do to get back in?" I go, "No, the, deal, the deal's closed. Have we dual signed the letter of intent. We're off the market."
1: And obviously, that closed, and everyone uh, walked away with probably more than they originally anticipated in this particular situation.
2: Well, it, it was a really impressive group of guys that put this company together. So I wasn't too surprised that they got a great result with this. So yeah, it was a it was a one of the easier ones, as I said.
1: Okay, well, you know, what would be the big takeaway for those that are listening in? What could they learn from this transaction that they might be able to apply in their own business?
2: Well, I would say the the one thing that we see over and over as a theme is the, the value of uh, contractually recurring revenue. Uh, you want to get people on contracts long-term if you can, where month after month they're paying a bill. And that, that's a huge uh, risk mitigation strategy for buyers is if you have contracts in place and those are recurring, uh, if the owner walks away, you know that those customers are not going to walk away with the owner. Uh, the, the other thing is not having customer concentration, uh, having a great business model, which these guys did, finding a niche, uh, doing it better than anybody else and having a a large runway or total addressable marketplace. And as I said, these guys checked all the boxes, and this was a great little company.
1: Okay, well, let's shift gears. Uh, That was a great transaction. Why don't we chat a little bit about something that maybe had a challenge or two in in the business model or in the transaction as it unfolded?
2: Well, that brings to mind one we had in in the Northeast that was a managed services provider. And for those that are not technologists, uh, managed services companies are basically the outsourced IT department for small to medium businesses. So these guys specialized in the smaller end of the market, maybe 50 seats was their average client. Uh, So what they would do is they would buy the hardware, software, configure it, install it, and then support it with help desk and troubleshooting. And it was a per seat per month charge. Well, we were uh, involved in selling them, and again, we went out to strategic buyers, we went out to private equity buyers, and the the ultimate best bidder was a private equity firm, and they were a fairly large firm. They owned about 40 companies and had a platform in the managed services space. These guys were quite a bit, our client was quite a bit smaller, so this would be an add-on or a tuck-in acquisition for them.
1: Okay, so let's talk about what a platform company is so our audience can get a little bit better feel for some of the buyers out there and how they approach uh, their acquisitions.
2: Well, I will tell you that it costs as much in terms of the resource to evaluate and buy a small company as it does a large company. So oftentimes private equity groups will have a... um, a floor and say, okay, if their EBITDA isn't at least a million dollars, don't bother talking to us. Or if it's not at least two and a half million, or if it's not five million, um, and they're using that at, to establish what they call a platform company. And that's the 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 way private equity groups make a lot of money is they buy a large company at a bigger multiple, and then they buy smaller companies at a smaller multiple. But the day they roll that up into the big company, all of a sudden that small company uh, assumes the multiple of the larger company. So it's mathematically uh, advantageous for them to do add-ons. So what they'll do is they'll buy a a large company that has those EBITDA requirements, and then they'll proceed to buy a number of tuck-ins or add-ons which would not meet those EBITDA requirements, but they're strategic because they're added on to the platform,
1: and that's what was happening here.
2: Right, uh, our company was a smaller company, so they had the the junior varsity uh, at the private equity group uh, running this deal.
1: Do you find that happens a lot with larger private equity groups that are doing a lot of deals that they have the second team in there negotiating some of these teams? Does that make it easier or harder?
2: Uh, it's it's uh, really difficult because we deal in the smaller companies. So oftentimes it's not a platform. So we do start out with the junior varsity sometimes, and that's just the nature of the beast with a smaller company. They're going to use the, the newer guys to do that. And then with the, with the large deals, they put the senior guys on it. So yes, we do deal with that. The, the challenge there is, they may not necessarily have the chops to get their deal past the investment committee that they've worked on for six months and have occupied our clients and our resources. And then they get shot down in the investment committee. And that's what happened on this particular deal. Uh, they took the, them off the market with a pretty generous LOI. We dual signed it. Okay.
1: So when you say took it off the market with a generous LOI which is a letter of intent is that a strategy or did they intend to pay that number or was it just a ploy well i i think they didn't I think they didn't intend to pay that number. And, and why? And why would they do that? Why, if, from a buyer's perspective, you know, they get this LOI. That's really wow. This is really great. Why would a strategic buyer, a private equity group, use that strategy to get the company off the market?
2: Well, ideally, they'd like to buy a deal, uh, a company uncontested, meaning there were no, no bankers and no competitors involved. Uh, but, you know, it's a zero sum game. So every dollar that they don't pay is a dollar out of our client's pocket. So we try and protect those dollars. Um, they are, they're investors. They want to employ every, every trick in the book to, uh, this happens to be a horrible practice. And I hate it. And I will speak up anytime anyone asks me about it. But it's a, it's a tactic that many private equity groups use. And I think it's just terrible that they have no intention of, of finishing the deal at the same transaction value that they proposed. And so they do this thing that's called retrading. And what they do is they hire these uh, consultants to come in and you know comb through the due diligence and try and find anything that they can use as a platform to lower the price.
1: So just for clarification, for the benefit of our audience here, retrading is a strategy that buyers sometimes use to make an offer and then either themselves or hire consultants to come in and find issues that they can trade down on the price.
2: That's right. Um, It's, as I said, it's a practice that, that I just don't like. It's part of the, you know, it's part of the nature of the beast. If you deal with enough private equity groups, you're going to run into this. Uh, You know, we try and uh, get a lot of competitors involved and let them know that it's a competitive deal. So if they misbehave, we'll just say, you know, you're gone and we'll go to the next guy. But oftentimes you're exhausting four months of due diligence and the owners are tired. They've gone through this exhaustive process. And, you know, we get an 11th hour deal chains, And sometimes they just go, I'm tired. I'll, I'll take it. I'll cave. So
1: in this particular case, what was the item that became the sticking point that they uncovered or felt was overpriced or not expensed to high enough?
2: Yeah, it was. I remember it specifically. Our client was in in New Hampshire, and the private equity group's platform company was in Boston. And they hired a um, benefits consultant to come in and look at the level of benefits that our client was paying their employees. And they basically had this consulting firm tell us well, to get your guys up to market for what our guys are having benefits would be an extra $100,000 a year in expense. And therefore, since we bought you at a 5X EBITDA multiple, we're going to lower the purchase price for your company by half a million dollars.
1: That's significant.
2: That's a significant number for a $3.5 million transaction. So we said, no, you're interpreting that to your favor. Our guys are at market for the benefits for their market in New Hampshire. And that's where they work. They don't work in Boston. So you could continue to pay them the same level. And I mean, it was, I, I just viewed it as totally arbitrary and a way to add some sort of credibility to a bad practice called retrading.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I guess we have to keep in mind that you're dealing with the B team here and they have to get that approved. You gave them the explanation, which makes total sense, but they have to run that by an investment committee or whomever they're getting to approve the deal to move forward. Right and the senior guys wouldn't buy it. Uh Uh-huh.
2: So all that work, would you say four months? It was uh, about four months of due diligence and it's exhaustive. I mean, they bring in the the SWAT team and they go over everything. You know, the, the owners have deal fatigue by the time you get to the, you know, that point and they, they do a haircut in the 11th hour. And, you know, unfortunately sometimes the buyer, the sellers just give in and say, okay, I'm done. Uh, In this case, we had a couple of tough New Hampshire boys that said, go pound sand, guys, we're not going to take it. So they took themselves off the market, no deal, and everybody lost on that one.
1: So I guess the real takeaway on this on the sell side is you really have to send out a message, I guess, kind of where you're coming from It's a competitive bid and what your parameters are. Is that a takeaway that you would think applies to this situation?
2: It it is. I think, uh, you know, one of the I think I wrote an article one time saying the biggest cause of deals blowing up is a loosely worded uh, letter of intent. And so a lot of times private equity guys or savvy buyers, uh, they will put something in like and the business will be turned over with a networking capital surplus, uh, you know, normalized for your business as determined during due diligence. (laughs) Wait a second. You know, that's a, that's a blank check. So we'll try and establish some sort of formula where that number is, is defined or actually define the number and say, okay, uh, it'll be three months worth of company expenses, which total $263,000. So the business will be turned over with a networking capital surplus of that number. Any, Any overage gets paid at closing to the to the seller. Any under is subtracted from the from the closing price. But I can't tell you the number of deals that I've heard about that go in with that open ended statement. And again, they bring in their their accounting people and their consultants and they go, Oh, you need six hundred thousand networking capital surplus. Oh, okay. Okay. That's four hundred thousand out of your pocket.
1: All right. I think that's uh, a good takeaway here for our audience as far as how you develop and position a letter of intent. And in this particular case, it didn't work out well and months of due diligence all went down the drain. So why don't we jump to another transaction here, Dave? Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about a transaction that was similar in the sense of its size and uniqueness in the market?
2: Uh We represented a um, uh little healthcare technology company that provided a, um, a executive dashboard. So what they did is they had software that would tap into the various hospital information systems and then for the management team would create sort of a graphic uh, representation of the business at any point in time. And it was very convenient for the senior management to you know turn their computer on and figure out where they needed to focus their attention or resources. And, but this guy was a typical technology company. He was a technologist. He wrote code. Uh, He could only grow his company to a certain size. He was not comfortable with the whole sales and marketing process. He had tried to hire a sales guy before. And of course he had to pay him a salary and a draw. And the guy never brought a sale across the, across the finish line. And he fired him and he lost, you know, $120,000. And he says, I'll never do that again. But he wanted to bring his company to the next level, and he came to the realization that the way for that to happen would be to uh, get acquired by either a private equity group or a strategic buyer that had the sales and marketing team in place that would be able to uh, promote his software and get the sales that he thought it deserved.
1: Do you find, especially in the technology realm where you have programmers and other tech people that are, are establishing companies that don't have a lot of marketing or sales acumen in their background and skill set, do you find that they will actually admit that and recognize their limitations of being able to take the business to the next level? Or is that something rather unique or unusual?
2: It's very common for the clients that we see as you know, there's a reason there are only a, a handful of, you know, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Larry Ellisons, because they were technology guys that figured out how to grow their companies with the sales and marketing. Uh, most smaller tech companies, the biggest hurdle they have is they don't understand the sales and marketing process. They don't feel comfortable with it. They don't know how to hire the sales management. And, you know, the, the business reaches a certain level and then they, They just stagnate and they want it it to go to the next level. And sort of selling the company is the one path that a lot of them take.
1: And in this particular case, you said that this founder really recognized that limitation and felt that the best way to do was plug his company into a larger
2: platform that already had those type of things figured out. That's exactly right. And as I said, I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard that statement from a from a seller, I just want to take this company to the next level. And they have recognized that sales and marketing is the way to do it, and they don't have that skill set, and they're ready to hand it off.
1: Do you do anything in the nursing, hospital, health type of field driven by technology?
2: Uh, We've represented several healthcare IT companies. Um, One comes to mind, it was a nurse scheduling and... um, Algorithm to determine the staffing levels, and they were acquired by a pretty decently sized publicly traded company, um, but we had two uh, really serious competitors that provided these large uh uh, information systems for hospitals. So it was the person that founded this company? Was
1: it a technology person? Or was it a medical person? Who was the real driver behind getting this company founded and established?
2: She was actually a former nurse. Okay. So she saw a niche and she developed a uh, an algorithm that would basically help hospitals determine their level of nurse staffing required based on not only the patient Number, but the acuity level of the patients in that in that hospital. So, if you had, for example, a green beret uh, patient that uh, uh, was having an appendectomy, he'd say, "Hey, give me a piece of leather, and I'll chew it, and you can cut me open. I'll be fine." Whereas you have a, a, uh, that's
1: very descriptive, you know, of a green beret. (laughs) Yeah,
2: right. Whereas you have a father with five young children and a wife that's just terrified, uh, it requires a lot of hand-holding and consultation. And so they, they would use that to sort of help with staffing. Um, but they were being pursued by two large publicly traded um, healthcare information systems And the way we positioned them was not that you'll love the revenue that this little software program will provide you, but we added on to your overall system and it will give you a feature advantage over your major competitor. And therefore, they're going to be able to sell their two and three million dollar packages and beat their competitor. So we had those two competitors going against each other and she got a value that you know, it was pretty stunning in my eyes.
1: So in a situation like that, where the business is driven by major competitors and they probably both know that they're bidding on or looking to acquire the same company, how do you really position that as a competitive advantage to drive up the price?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting if you kind of watch any of the investment shows and you'll see XYZ company just made an acquisition of this company. You can bet their major competitor is going to be out in the market soon after them and buying a similar company. It's a, a competitive thrust and parry, and you know I say there's nothing better that can happen as we're representing a client in a certain space and one of their competitors gets acquired. That's just you know there's going to be a feeding frenzy, uh, you know this this fear of missing out by the by the competitors. It, it really unleashes the animal spirit. So how does a company know
1: that their competitor is in play? You know, can you give me any stories of where
2: someone found out that somebody else was in play? <laughs> well, in, in this particular case, it's kind of a funny story. But um, our guy that was running the deal was out with our client at a um, a corporate meeting for the other competitor that ended up not being, or excuse me, the, the one company that ended up buying them. And the other company had visited before and he had the guy's business card and put it in his shirt pocket. And it was a white shirt. It was somewhat see-through and the, the uh, logo of the competitor was on his, in his shirt pocket he said during the meeting these guys were just looking at my pocket as i'm talking well they left that meeting they flew home and we had a letter of intent that was very generous uh in our inbox uh 24 hours later uh and i have a feeling that that you know that pocket uh, <laughs> stimulated uh, that that competitive response
1: well, whatever he paid for that translucent pocketed <laughs> shirt probably
2: paid off handsomely huh every once in a while we get lucky you know so
1: i guess the big takeaway on a, a transaction like this is the strategic value that is created really allows the company to trade at a much higher multiple than it would normally because of the strategic nature of that type of business and what the market is really values in that type of company adding to the strategic as you said i think you said that this little company's software, while itself not tremendously expensive, allowed them to tack it on and gain a competitive advantage over their competitor's system and allowing them to place multi-million dollar systems in to give them that really strategic advantage. And that can be very valuable and drive up the price is what I guess what you're you're saying.
2: I remember early in my career, I, I was uh, a watching johnson and johnson a name that's wonderfully in the press today uh, or congratulations to them um but they had bought a company that had 40 million dollars in revenue and they paid 400 million dollars for them. and i said i just don't understand what this was all about how could you pay that much money and it turns out the company they bought had invented time release technology so uh drug would be released over many hours and at the time, Johnson Johnson was able to extend the patent life of several of their major drugs by introducing a time-released um, version of it, and that meant billions of dollars to them. So, you know, there, there are ways that you can position companies to be strategic and, you know, making a large piece of software have features that their major competitor doesn't have. Is one of those ways you can you can do that?
1: And in this particular case, that's exactly what happened. Is what you're saying?
2: Yes. Okay. Cool.
1: Well, share another transaction with us, Dave. That has something a little unusual that you don't see all the time, as far as a software platform.
2: Well, we had uh, we we recently, uh, in fact, during COVID times, uh, were able to close a transaction. Uh, it was a software-driven audit recovery firm, and basically, what they did is they examined the uh, the accounts payable of a major retailer, and would uh, discover any discounts that weren't taken, uh, early payment discounts, quantity discounts, etc., and then they would get a uh, a percentage of the recovery that the vendor would get or the uh, retailer would get from their vendors. Um. Unfortunately, this was going on, our sale was going on during COVID, the 80% or 85% of their business was with one major retailer. And the company that was buying them was a private equity group and went out to their tried and true funders. So they were raising debt along with their equity to buy them. And the lenders would not lend them money on this deal because it was retail and it was during COVID. And um, the, the, the buyer came back to us and said, we have to change this deal uh, because we can't get it funded. We still love your company. Uh, and in the past, I would say most of my clients would have gone, that's it, I'm out of here, done, go away. Uh, this guy was, was uh, mature and smart enough to recognize that conditions really had materially changed on the original offer versus where we were today.
1: So let me just back up and rewind here a minute. I want to make sure that we cover something here that you said. Yeah, private equity traditionally develops strategy for acquisition that involves some of their money, but in most cases, they leverage by borrowing. Isn't that the way most uh, private equity deals are structured?
2: That is correct. That's, that's you know, using leverage is part of their their business model.
1: And so in this particular case, because of COVID, uh, they went out to the lenders that they probably dealt with a number of times before. And because it was retail in COVID, even though they probably dealt with this private equity group and knew the management of the group and knew that they had good management capabilities within their group to manage acquisitions, they just didn't want to take that risk during COVID. That is correct. They just were not going to be able to get the deal done as they would normally have done it in non-COVID
2: times. Right. And this group was they were a top-notch group. They were they were good actors. I mean, they were, you know, they didn't pull your your typical, you know, tricks. They they were a quality team. They had good funders in place that knew how good they were and trusted them. But it was just those circumstances that materially changed the deal. And again, they said, hey, you guys, we love your company. We still want to buy you, but we just can't do it on the terms that we originally um, put out. So what did they come back with? Well, they moved a lot of the transaction value from cash at closing to an earnout. So if the if the client stayed with them for a number of years and just produced at a 5% growth rate, this guy would make. The same amount of transaction value that he would have made on the original deal is just it was going to take him, you know, three or four years to get that total transaction value.
1: And as you said, in normal times, a deal like this, you know, people are not going to take that risk of what the next two or three years are going to be like, and they're going to want to maybe take less money, but be able to close the transaction then. Versus this earnout, which may or may not happen. But you, you indicated in this particular case, you had a smart and aware buyer, knowing that circumstances had changed, and was willing to stand at the plate and play ball. I guess was what you're telling us. Yes.
2: Well, it was you know it was a a, a very very nice piece of software. It was extremely high gross margins because what he did is he turned a, a quite labor intensive manual audit process into an ai kind of approach to finding the, the the recoveries and and that was a powerful model and so the, the buyers recognized it but they also were good business people and wanted to mitigate their risk especially during this sort of onslaught for retail and the covid environment
1: and so in this transaction as it unfolded the real takeaway is is that circumstances just drive deal terms if the earnout rolled out as anticipated, they would get as much or maybe even a little bit more in transaction value by accepting the deal under the modified terms. You nailed it. Yes. Okay.
2: You know, I tell, um, I tell my clients, um, oftentimes you'll have a change in the deal at the 11th hour. And it's important to understand how to react to that. So for example, let's say that you have the, the head of business development, or a corporate MA, and he's dealing with you, and he does the letter of intent, and you get to go to putting together the definitive purchase agreement, and they finally bring in the legal team from the buying company. And their whole point in life is protect the mothership. And so there's something that the deal team agreed to that the legal team is going to the board saying there's no way we're doing that and so they come back and they want to change the deal. Well, what you have to do as a as a seller, you have to recognize, wait a second, what's going on here, and if they're changing the deal, let's ask for something commensurate with the change that they made. Don't get crazy and and be vindictive, but sometimes those things happen in a deal, and you've got to remain flexible and mature about that. Otherwise, You'll have wasted the, all the time you put into the deal and the due diligence, and you know won't get the deal completed
1: well, I think that's sage advice the back and forth uh it takes to get a deal done is not only difficult sometimes but emotionally draining, and it's very tough sometimes to not get crazy, as you said, and walk away from the table when all it would take is a little tweaking to get the deal done without giving up. A lot. And having someone like you involved, especially in the software world where there's so many different types of twists and turns that can happen at the last minute, as there is in a lot of different transactions. Well, Dave, this has been a delight to be able to chat with someone with your background and experience and talking to someone that's had these deal specialties in the software and uh, technology world. Uh, What I'd like to do is just have you share a little bit about how people can reach you if they want to chat a little bit more about their specific situation and how they deal with positioning their company
2: for sale sometime in the future. How would they reach you and get a hold of you? Okay. My direct office number is 269-231-5772. Our webpage is midmarkcap.com, M-I-D-M-A-R-K-C-A-P.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's K-A-U-P-P-I. And uh, Dave is the first
0: name.
1: Okay, Dave. uh, Again, thank you for being here. So this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode.
0: Thanks, Marvin. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details please subscribe rate review and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms and remember maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically it takes planning